This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. Do we have the heart of God or the heart of Jonah? Are we wishing for the demise of people who disagree with us? Or are we hoping for their transformation? Welcome to the Church Lobby, Conversations on Faith and Ministry. My name is Carl Vaders, and my guest today is Ryan Loxmo. Ryan is a church planter and the pastor of Real Hope Community Church in the greater Houston area. He's also the author of a new book, Paul and His Team, What the Early Church Can Teach Us About Leadership and Influence. In this episode, Ryan and I talk about what we can learn from how the Apostle Paul worked so well with his ministry team and how those lessons translate to ministry today, including how Paul dealt with conflict, how Paul used kingdom diplomacy in an amazing study of the book of Philemon that he walks us through. Also, a fascinating look about how Paul's relational stewardship leaked out through the openings and closings of his letter where he greeted those that he worked with. And then finally, how to hand off the baton well. And don't forget to stick around when the interview is done. I'll come back with an overview of the content and some practical takeaways. Well, welcome to the podcast today, Ryan. It is really great to have you on. Glad to be here. You've written a book, Paul and His Team, What the Early Church Can Teach Us About Leadership and Influence, which I had the chance to get an advanced copy of and really, really appreciated. And so I've been wanting to have you on now that the book is actually physically out and people can get it. I want to talk through some of this. And I, I plan on taking a look at four key areas from the book. We're going to look at Paul and how he dealt with conflict, which you really lay out well, what you call kingdom diplomacy. It's actually a a look at the touchy subjects from the very short book of Philemon. I love how Mm -hmm. you tackle that. Then we'll look at what you call relational stewardship. And then finally, handing the baton off, or you entitle it fading fade to the background in chapter 11. But before I actually get to those four key spots, let me just come straight out the question, why another book on the Apostle Paul? I think there may be one or two out there about this guy. (laughs) So what was it that caught your attention about Paul particularly that that led you to write this book? Yeah, as you said, there's so many books about Paul. I definitely wasn't interested in writing another book that kind of covered similar terrain. The book actually started when I was in grad school when I was working on my PhD and I was I was focused actually on the book of Philemon. That's kind of the heart of what my dissertation was. As I studied Paul more and more and kind of the historical background of that letter and, and more broadly, just sort of the social world of the, the first century church, I just found these names jumping off the page at me as I would read the New Testament, these names that um, they might appear a couple of times here or there in Paul's letters, or maybe they get a mention in Acts. And uh, because they don't get a lot of press, they just don't strike you as that important. And I just started to have the impression that, you know, Paul gets a lot of credit and he's uh, do that credit. I mean, he worked so hard and he did such incredible things with the Lord's help to you know establish the church. But 
wow, there was just this incredible group of men and women around him that uh, if you're willing to kind of piece their stories together from acts and kind of passing references and the rest of his letters, this picture of a team really comes into focus. And that's what I wanted to highlight, really put Paul more in the context of this team he was leading and that he was a part of, and he very much viewed himself as a part of this team. That's why he used language that gets translated into English as co, right? Co-worker, co-laborer. You know, he viewed himself as being a part of a team. And so I wanted to bring that into focus, but then kind of the last piece of the puzzle before writing it was, you know, I didn't want to write a book that was just kind of like one chapter on each person. Uh, I wanted to organize it around these ideas, these leadership ideas, these principles that they seem to be living out as they led together. That's kind of how it came together. Yeah, it really is because I, I have read it and tagged it and noted it and all kinds of things. There's so much good stuff in it, but I do love that approach. There's, like I said, there's a lot about the Apostle Paul, but it tends mm-hmm. to focus just on him or simply on his message. And as you say, that all deserve it deserves all the writing that it has received. Yeah. But you even mention in here, and in fact, there's one of the chapters we'll get to where you talk about kind of the almost the detective work you can do by looking mm-hmm. at his greetings and the beginning yeah. of his letters and then his uh, depart, you know, departing uh, uh, greetings at the end of his letters. And right. if you go through that, you see this amazing network of people. You even see how he dealt with people, how he related to them, how he called yeah. people by name who were of a status in their society that you usually weren't even named. Right. And it's subtle because he wasn't doing it to say, here's how you should t- treat people. He was just treating them that way. And it came from yeah. the way he wrote. Right. Exactly. I, I like the way you just framed it because you can sort of make a distinction in Paul's letters. Like there's the part where he's teaching and he's kind of on. And then there's the part where he's kind of metaphorically stepped off the stage and he's chatting with whoever is. Yeah. Send me my coat and my it. books. Yeah. Right, exactly. And, <laughs> and, you know, like you said, he's just being Paul. He's not teaching. He's, he's just right. he's just being a, a follower of Christ in the first century. And he's saying hello to people he knows, people he hopes to meet. And that's it, a very human part of these letters. And, and um, sadly, some of the most easily overlooked, because if we have a view of scripture that like, I'm just opening the Bible and I just want to get a nugget for life today. That's not wrong per se, but it's maybe not the whole picture of what scripture is. I think often people read all of the Bible as if it's Proverbs and you can't really do that with all the different genres and Paul's letters in particular, you know, when you start seeing all these ancient names, it's easy to feel like, yeah, that's not for me. But if you're willing to look at what it actually says, wow, it's just, it's a beautiful treasury, you know, of relationships. Yeah, it is wonderful because there is no disconnect between Paul just being Paul with his friends and Paul on yeah. stage doing the teaching. It's almost That's like right. there's a certain point in the letter where you turn off the mic and he's just chatting before he leaves the room. There's, there's that right. sense to it. It is a full, it is a full, uh, a, a life of integrity. There's no disconnect. You don't see two different mm-hmm. people there, which of course That's is true. one of, one of the great examples for us and for our ministry. But let's let's tackle some of these key subjects that you look at, because there's a lot sure. in it we won't even touch mm-hmm. anywhere close to most of it. But right. starting with Paul and conflict, uh, I don't know why, but for some reason, the idea of dealing with conflict better feels like a, an important to- topic for us to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine why. Uh, 
Yeah. Yeah, I know. You mentioned that we tend to see people, especially if we're looking at it through a political lens and quite often through a theological lens, we tend to see mm-hmm. people as either allies or enemies. And the phrase you you actually used in the book was this would have baffled Paul and his friends. Talk about why that would have baffled them and how did they tend to see people rather than as allies or enemies. Right. Well, they certainly had a lot of enemies, right? I mean, the, the Roman world distrusted them and was sometimes openly hostile. And so they had plenty of opportunities for conflict. And I think what, what would baffle them about how, how so much of the dialogue these days among Christians and among leaders is how it just so often seems like we're looking for conflict. <laughs> you know, we're like, we're almost seeking it out, welcoming it, uh, feeding it, nurturing it. And I think Paul and the people in his circle would have felt like, there's so much that's challenging already. Why would you, you know, why would you do that? And, you know, why would you foster disunity among the body of Christ when all of us are struggling to grow anyway? It's hard enough. Why would you go out of your way to make it worse? And then I also think it would baffle Paul and the people working alongside of him. How, yeah, like you said, that we just write people off as, as enemies. Oh, they're against us. So it's fine to be against them. Paul, the lengths he went to reach out to the very people persecuting him, thinking about his trial, for example, when you know he's giving his testimony to uh, Agrippa and Festus, and they kind of stop him in the middle and say, well, you think you're going to turn me into a Christian? And he says, look, I don't care if it takes a long time or short. I hope that you become who I am. Yeah. And others have pointed this out. Tim Keller does a great job in his book on Jonah. Do we have the heart of God or the heart of Jonah? Are we wishing for the demise of people who disagree with us? Are we hoping for their transformation? And I think that's what I'm getting at when I say when it comes to conflict, Paul was a realist. He knows that some of it's unavoidable, but wow, like you you seem to be really running toward it a lot. And why? You talk about, of course, the, the, the infamous, you know, sermon on Mars Hill, the Areopagus in Athens, where Paul famously used their quoted their poets <laughs> and not scripture to build a bridge. I've, I've literally right. heard other pastors say, this is the one place where Paul failed. He didn't do it because, I mean, obviously Paul was not perfect. Paul was a sinner. Paul made mistakes, but it's really, right. it, it really got to twist yourself into some strange shapes to look at that and go, this was not the right way for him to have done it <laughs> as you read through that right. passage. So talk about that for a moment. What was mm-hmm. that strategy that he did that he used on Mars Hill? quoting their pagan poets, Mm -hmm. why would he do that rather than just pull out scripture, which is what he did, you know, commonly, you know, he he breathed scripture in and out. And then in this one exception, he went kind of sideways. Where where did that come from? And why, and Mm -hmm. why did he do that? Well, I think Paul understood that God had good plans for his whole background. And so he, he had this dual background growing up in Tarsus this Greco-Roman city, you know, being highly educated in Greco-Roman literature and culture, and then also having the kind of high-level, you know, rabbinical training in Jerusalem with Gamaliel. And, you know, he had both of those. And I I think he understood that God intended him, you know, to reach the Gentiles and to use the fullness of his background to, to win people. And so that's why we see that happening on both sides. When he goes into a town, if there's a synagogue, He's going to go in and start talking about scripture. He's going to use the Old Testament. He's going to reason on the basis of that. But when he goes to the Areopagus, a place that's never heard of Christ, high-level elite philosophical thinkers in Greece, he knows his audience. He knows that it won't mean anything to them if he starts quoting 
from the Psalms or whatever, maybe they would have some basic knowledge or awareness of it, but it just wouldn't, it wouldn't mean the same thing. And so I, I think he combined, like you said, quoting the Greek poets, but also pointing to their altar to an unknown God. And, and yeah. he's trying to reach them on their level and similar strategy in uh, Lystra, a little earlier, uh, earlier chapter in Acts where they, you know, pagan environment, they don't understand him. And he, when he appeals to them and says, Hey, I'm not, we're not Zeus and Barnabas or uh, Zeus and Hermes yeah. here. He's not quoting scripture at them. He's trying to reach them on their level. And, and I think that's a great lesson to us. He, he knows his audience. And also in this, going back to the conflict thing, I do think this is a source of conflict today between the church and non-Christians. Paul, he did not expect non-Christians to act like Christians or to get it. He, you know, he, right. he just accepted that. And I think Christians in our society can be sort of shocked and surprised when non-Christians aren't acting like Christians or thinking like Christians, like scandalized, like how dare they? And it's kind of like, well, hang on a sec. Why would they? Why on yeah, earth exactly. would they? think like we think or act like we, we struggle to act like we're supposed to act. Why on earth would <laughs> yeah. they? And so yeah. I think, you know, what an example that he knows what environment he's in and he's trying to, he's trying to reach them with something. And, and clearly it worked, you know, he reached pagans and yeah. reached Jews. And so recognize that God wants to use all kinds of ways to reach people. Yeah. And it's a beautiful and profound balance to the way he approaches it because on the Areopagus, for instance, he quotes the Greek poets and he shows respect for it. Mm -hmm. He quotes them accurately. He doesn't undermine them, but then he shows while showing respect to them, then shows, but here's what they're missing. He points to yeah. this unknown God thing. Right. So there, there are both, we, we have a tendency, I think, to do one or the other, either mm -hmm. totally dismiss it and totally disrespect it. And then why aren't right. they coming over to me? Well, you just disrespected where they are. Which right. means it feels like you disrespected them. So why would they listen to you? Or on the other hand, we get so enamored with learning about and uh, having some respect for other mm -hmm. ways of belief that we treat them as though they're on a par with the truth of scripture, which they're not. <laughs> right. Right. And, and, yeah. and people on both ends seem to be afraid of the other side. And Paul wasn't afraid of either side. He said, yeah, yeah, these are smart people. The Greeks had a, had a brain in their head, but <laughs> they missed this. We, we can treat yes. it. We can treat our, those on the opposite side of us with respect and mm -hmm. then point out the difference. And I think we get farther with that. At least that's, that's what I read from Paul. Yeah. Because you're basically, do you want a relationship with these people or not? You know, if, if, if you're going for a relationship, an ongoing influence, then it's got to start on a position of just basic kindness and respect. And, and also I think the caginess that we Christians can sometimes feel toward uh, Christians who think something different from what we do or non-Christians like yeah. society as a whole, I think the caginess we feel, or just feeling like we have to answer every question instantly and have all the right answers. And just that can reveal in us a lack of trust in God. Like you can reveal an impulse of I've got to lay out all the truth right now in the most forceful way possible, because if I don't, you know, maybe I'm not a serious Christian or maybe, you know, what would people think if I just listen to this person who thinks very different from me? And I just say, that's really interesting. I appreciate you sharing that. And you trust that God's going to open the door for further conversations. And maybe a year down the road, you open up a door, but I think it can show a lack of faith, a lack of trust on our part. Uh, do we trust that God can use us over time in someone's life 
to help them see the truth as opposed to, no, 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 I've got to tell them everything right now. And if they don't respond well, then I've either failed or they're a terrible person. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. That reveals a lack of trust, I think. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think people sense that in us. And then it feels to them, I think, like it's a sales job rather than right. the, share, right. the sharing of a relationship <clears throat> that we would love for you to participate in as well, which is what Paul did so beautifully, even as a prisoner in front of the <laughs> yes. pagan king. He was like, yeah, I, I do. Other than these chains, you being like me is exactly the goal I'm aiming, aiming yes. for here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which leads to uh, section number two, you call it kingdom Dis- diplomacy. It's mm-hmm. a beautiful unpacking of the very short book of Philemon, which, as you said, was a part of your uh, doctoral work. And Philemon is a, is a challenging passage for most pastors. Anybody who spent a little bit of time in it, quite often yeah. we, we, we tend to do one of two things. Either we ignore the slavery aspects of it and, and often just ignore the book entirely. Okay. Or on the other side, there are people who are out there denouncing Paul for not angrily condemning you know, slavery and slaveholder. And you, you do neither. You really approach this very, very sticky, very, very challenging, very, very difficult mm-hmm. issue. And I think a wonderful way. Can you just quickly for those of us who may not, who aren't Mm -hmm. most of us, most of our listeners will be somewhat familiar with this, but won't have done the work that you've done quickly outline the story of Paul Onesimus and Philemon for us. Mm. Yeah. The first thing I'll say, going back to an idea that came up earlier, this idea of, you know, the difference, the difference between Paul preaching and just being Paul, the famous verses in Galatians about we're all one in Christ Jesus. There's no male or female, slave or free, you know, Jew, Gentile. That's kind of him preaching, right? This is a spiritual truth. Right. You could think of the letter to Philemon as Paul living that out. Like that here's a real instance of, you know, a clash of statuses in the Roman world that are really out of step with the gospel. And there are two Christians that are relating to each other in a way that's out of step with the gospel. And Paul's going to speak into that. And so that's, that's why I find it very powerful. It's kind of like Paul practicing what he preaches, the letter to Philemon. You can think of it that right. way. But to answer your question, this takes place in Colossae, right? This small town near, not too far from Ephesus. And there was a small church in Colossae, and it was hosted in the house of this rich man, Philemon, uh, who was a Christian and who knew Paul, or at least they knew of each other. You know, they had some relationship. It appears from the letter that he had a slave, Philemon did in his house. And the slave's name was Onesimus. And his name meant useful, uh, which was common for slave names. You know, they just had these kind of little pet names like Felix, which meant lucky and things like that. So Onesimus is a slave of this Christian master, which just that is hard for our modern ears to hear. Like, oh yeah, what? But you can't overstate how ordinary it was in the first century for people to be or own slaves. Almost no one thought it was wrong. You know, it's unsurprising to a first century reader to know that this is happening. Well, anyway, Onesimus seems to have run away and, oh, he did run away. And somehow, and this is, was the source of my, my dissertation and a lot of ink spilled over this. Somehow after running away from Philemon, he finds Paul probably in Rome when Paul was in prison. And it seems he became a Christian through Paul's influence. And Paul, at some point along the line, realizes, oh, I know where you come from. In fact, I know your master. And he sends Onesimus back to his master, which, by the way, slaves could be killed or otherwise brutalized and often work for running away. And and especially for a long time, which clearly 
Onesimus was gone for a very long time to have found Paul in a far off city. So it was legally thought of as theft of self when you did that. It was a strange legal status, but um, it was a very severe thing that had happened. And, and so he could, he could die, but Paul sent him back confident that that wouldn't happen. And he sent him back to his master Philemon with this letter, which we call Philemon, in which Paul is appealing to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. And it's a beautiful expression of the gospel because Paul is saying he's building up Philemon, but he's also saying, you know, this guy Onesimus, you know, you used to think of him as just this slave, but he has become a follower of Christ and you all are now brothers and you have to think of him in a fundamentally different way. And I want you to welcome him as you welcomed me. And if he owes you anything, if he stole anything to finance his flight, like I'll pay it back. And what a great demonstration of the gospel. As Jesus says to us, if you know, Ryan owes anything, you know, charge it to my account. This is what Paul is offering for this runaway slave. And it seems that Tychicus, another one of Paul's co-workers, hit the road with Onesimus to go back and uh, probably carrying Philemon and possibly Colossians and Ephesians along the way. So it's a really remarkable moment in the first century church and really shows that, you know, social tension. So just the complexity of it, but the beauty of it when you kind of see it. So you've got a slave who runs away from the master. At some point or another, the master has become a Christian. At some point or another, the slave becomes a Christian through Paul who knew the master. And now Mm -hmm. he sends a message back to Philemon carried by the runaway slave to go back (laughs) and explaining to him how to treat him differently now as brothers in Christ, that 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 our brotherhood in Christ now supersedes any other relationship. Exactly. possibly could have had. So that's the, that's the situation in this tiny little behind this tiny little letter. Right. What does he say? Getting into the message now of the letter. I love how you framed it earlier. Like Galatians is him preaching, but Philemon is really, he didn't write the book of Philemon to teach believers in the 21st century, how to become Christians. That was not Paul's intent behind it. It does teach us that, but what that was, his intent was to sort out this relationship between these two people who had now become Mm -hmm. Christians, how that was to supersede their former master, their current master slave relationship and master runaway slave relationship, which made it hazardous and complicated. So what did he do in there that was so beautifully diplomatic? Mm. He's speaking into that, that situation that was so rife with risk. Right. You know, he, he did a lot of things. It's sort of a, a masterclass of diplomacy. He, when Paul begins the letter, he first of all addresses it to Philemon and the church in his house. So that's kind of the first move Paul makes to mm. set the table of how this letter is going to be received. Is he wants the whole church to hear? Others so there's a little bit of, now. Yeah, there's a little accountability <laughs> there, right? Yeah. So how Philemon responds is going to be watched. But then he, Paul, starts out with positive. He goes on about how Philemon has refreshed his heart, and he. I know you love the Lord is essentially what he's saying. And you, you have served the people, God's people really well. And I'm so thankful for you. So, you know, a cynical reader would say, ah, he's kind of buttering up Philemon for the tough request that's coming. But I, I, I don't feel that way. I, it is a little bit of a rhetorical move, but I think it's, I think it comes from a genuine place that he really feels that way. And he wants Philemon to know that, that look, I'm about to say some hard things, but you have to understand that I care about yeah. So he's, he's, he's establishing that rapport. And then he goes on to say like this kid, and he probably was young. Um, at least that's a prevailing theory. He became a Christian. He's like my own heart. He's telling Philemon, you have no idea how much I love him. You may be so mad at him, 
I love him. And, and then he talks about, you know, receiving him back as a brother. Isn't that better than as a slave and kind of giving him that gospel vision. But then he goes on from there to say, essentially, you know, I would have loved for him to stay with me and serve for the gospel. But in so many words, he tells Philemon, you know, I, I didn't want to, I want to give you the chance to do me that favor and then just do it for you. I want to give you the chance to do the right thing. If there's any obstacles to your generosity, like he owes you money, he, like I'll pay it. Like, don't let, don't let those be a stumbling block. And then he, at the end, I think it's kind of funny. There, there are a few, and he's kind of funny throughout because he makes all these little puns in the original Greek, Paul does. So there's some definite like tongue in cheek moments. So he's talking about a very serious subject and he's bringing the gospel to expression in a real situation, but he's also finding little moments of levity. He's reaffirming his love for Philemon. And at the end, in another moment that kind of makes me smile a little, he, he simultaneously, he says, look, I, I hope I get to see you soon. Prepare a guest room for me, which simultaneously is like, I hope to see you. I care about you. I look forward to seeing you. And also I'm going to come and see how you responded. You know, there's yeah. a little bit of a accountability. I, I, I'm going to be in your house. You're not going to get away with it if you try. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he, he, he touches on, you know, Paul encourages, he gives a gospel perspective. He, you know, there's some humor in there. Wow. What a tense situation. And you can just see Paul just so much gentleness and tact, but also conviction. Yeah. And it's really, I mean, we can learn a lot. Yeah, this it really is that that chapter alone is worth getting the book for because you take it directly from the, both the situation behind and the content in that letter. And right. obviously, for anybody who spent any time in pastor in the pastoral ministry, and especially for those of us who pastor in smaller congregations, most of whom are the only pastor on mm-hmm. staff, you know, we've got to be Paul in those situations where there are conflicts right. between members of the church. And, you know, they're not going to be on the level of a runaway slave from a master. Right. But the, I think the wonderful point of it is if the gospel can speak even into that severe a situation, yes. obviously it can speak into a, you know, a feelings hurt situation that we deal with mm-hmm. that are also serious, but boy, they're not brought done, you know, written with quite that broad strokes typically in our lives anymore either. So yeah, yeah wonderful way you unpack that for us. And again, I encourage folks to, to take a look at that even closer. And now a short break to talk about something else. If you like the content you're hearing, here are two things you can do for us. First, forward this podcast to a friend. Second, consider becoming a financial supporter through Patreon, Venmo, or PayPal. Just go to carlvaders.com slash support. For as little as $3 a month, you can help us put these resources into the hands of the ministries that need them the most. Our support link is in the show notes. This episode is brought to you by the Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. 
Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Let's move from that. I could spend I could spend the whole time just on the Philemon thing. I love that stuff so much. <laughs> but let's move along to the next thing, to relational stewardship, which we tipped our, our, our head on earlier, where yeah. you really talk about, I would love to, in fact, at some point, I'm probably going to, I could preach an entire sermon series on just the openings and closings of Paul's letters. Yeah. And that's what you take an entire chapter on. So let's mm-hmm. walk through a little bit. What kinds of things do we learn when we take a look at how Paul opened and closed his letters and the kind of people he was traveling mm-hmm. with and talking to? There's so much good content there. I mean, he'll he'll mention co-senders of the letter, so you get a sense of who he's working with. Sometimes he's addressing letters to individuals, sometimes whole churches. So right at the beginning of the letter, it's like these relationships are being put in front of you. And then it tends to be the case that the more personal comments come at the end, the beginning, right. you know, you'll get kind of Paul introducing himself. And it's actually interesting to pay attention to the language he uses to describe himself because he, he kind of describes himself similarly in some letters, but sometimes he'll put the, kind of give different titles or, or descriptors to himself. So that's kind of interesting, but who's he sending this with yeah. Timothy or whoever, and who's he sending it to? That's interesting. But then at the end, you really get this great content. Romans 16 is maybe the most famous because it's so long. All these names, but again, just like these gems in there. Like, well, I remember he says, uh, I don't have it right in front of me, but he mentions Rufus's mother, who's been like a mother to me. Right. And and that one, I don't know why that one has always stood out to me. There's a Mm -hmm. story there. There was a woman in the first century church who yeah. was like a mother to Paul. What does that mean? Yeah. Was she cooking for him? Was she, she made him a jacket? You know, I don't know, but, but there's a story there and some of the content around, this is uh, covered more thoroughly in a different chapter, but some of the, the end of the story of Paul's break from Mark in the book of Acts, when Paul and Barnabas mm-hmm. disagreed on whether right. to bring Mark, you kind of get the epilogue to that. And again, yeah. these kind of passing remarks where, Mark is with me. He's very useful to me in ministry. And he's, Paul's mentioning him in passing maybe a decade or so later after this split. So you see that at some point down the line, they got back together, they're working together and they patched up whatever conflict was there. Paul mentioning all kinds of coworkers and just amazing stories. And so it's neat the way he was so proactive about attending to those relationships. For me, as a pastor ministering now to small church pastors, what really strikes me about it in the way you phrase it, especially in the book, is there is the the teaching and the relational aspect to Paul. And he, while we've already talked about, there's the like the onstage teaching, and then there's the offstage hanging out with friends and commenting on it. But there's a thread that goes through them all. And I think we perceive the on and offstage more than Paul perceived the on and offstage. I think he perceived it all as an integrated whole, Mm -hmm. as we who are in pastoral ministry ought to as well. Some of us will say, for instance, that we're more comfortable behind the pulpit preaching than we are hanging Mm -hmm. out in the church lobby with people and having conversation. Others are exactly the opposite. They're great relationally and they're not strong in the pulpit. But Mm -hmm. what matters is that however good you are at either one of them, that they need to be integrated. And the smaller the church is, the more important it is to have an integrated life in your, both Mm -hmm. your relationship with the congregation and with the way you teach the Mm -hmm. congregation. And if either doesn't match the other, 
that's where we get mm. into the kind of crises and uh, yeah. toxic environments that are often created in a church. Right. We've got to have an integrity. And Paul is such a great mm -hmm. example that relational integrity, you don't mm -hmm. see any falseness in his, right. between those two aspects of his life. Mm -hmm. I think you picked the exact right word when you said integrity. I think that's what you see. You know, you see that he is, there's not, a, a, he doesn't see it as, as uh, disconnected. He, he's, he's offering himself to his people through what he's teaching, but also just through himself, yeah. his friendship. Yeah, that's, yeah. It's inspiring to see how connected that is. The feeling I always get from Paul is that he used his teaching to build his relationships instead of using his relationships to build his teaching. <laughs> yeah, um, that's you know that's well said. Yeah. Too many of us do the opposite of that. Everybody's here to serve me in the pulpit. And right. No, the pulpit ought to be serving the church. Uh that's <laughs> and, right. Paul, and, and Paul taught and lived that way. Exactly. And and you know, you know, as well as I do, when you teach in a younger church, smaller church. Hey, this is true to some extent in larger churches as well. And you look out and you see faces of people you know and you love and you care about, it affects your teaching. Oh, because boy. you know, you're talking about relationships and you know this one's falling apart, or you know this person is will soon lose a loved one, or just lost a loved one, or just lost their job. When you know those things, it affects you and it can break your heart. And it can also inspire you when you're going to the biblical text because you're thinking about these people that you care about and you know, care about you. And so the preaching, I think you're right. The, the boundaries get broken down a little bit between the teaching and the rest, because knowing them influences what you say and what you mm -hmm. say and the way you say it is inviting to them to continue investing in that relationship. And there's this kind of cyclical, you're each feeding into it and, and people know that you care about them. Right. I mean, I think yeah. that's Paul, he couldn't be in all these places at once. So he's planted all these churches all over and travel is very expensive and arduous in the first century. And so he's writing these letters as an extension of his care. And so yeah. that's what I see in, in the beginnings and endings of the letter, the parts that are the most easily skipped over because it's quote, just a bunch of names, but really that is the part of the letter where Paul is very deliberately saying, there's no way I'm sending a letter and have someone walking for six weeks to bring it to Ephesus without those people in Ephesus knowing how much I care about them and that I'm thinking about them and I'm praying for them. And I remember their names and it is like the most tangible expression of this care, these parts of the letters that we skip so easily. And so I, yeah. I find that just kind of a ironic element of reading the Bible. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's beautifully expressed. Let's get to the, the handing the baton you call fade to the background chapter. This is a big issue for me. And I know it is for a lot of our listeners. It was, it's been five years ago that I handed off the baton of the lead pastorate mm -hmm. of the congregation that I had been the lead pastor of for 25 years. I handed mm -hmm. it off to my assistant pastor. I'm still at the church now with him working uh, now mm -hmm. under him, with him. And in this year, I'm going to be even handing the reins off of that so that by next year, I will not be on staff anymore. So I will have mm. completely handed the reins off. I'm at that phase of my ministry moving now into doing this ministry to small church pastors full-time. That's great. So it's not a retirement, it's a transition, but it is right. a handing of the reins. And in my home church, it is a fading into mm -hmm. the background as I've handed off the baton. One of the lines that I loved in this chapter, let me just quote you directly and then we'll go from there. If there was anyone in the first century who would have seemed truly irreplaceable to his team, it was Paul, but Paul didn't view himself that way. 
I thought it was a beautiful way of phrasing it. So if Paul did not view himself as irreplaceable, how did he view himself and how did that impact the way he handed off the ministry to others? Well, I think it's important to just pay close attention to how he describes himself. The wor- what are the words Paul used for himself? And like I said, he, he often used language of equity, coworker, things mm-hmm. like that. And not to get too technical, but the, all those words that we translated to English, they come from Greek words with the S-Y-N prefix, which okay. in English synergy, you know, uh, right. together. So coworker, co-laborer, co-prisoner, co, you know, uh, mm-hmm. all those words, they all have that S-Y-N prefix. And that is a term of shared leadership. And so, yes, he had a special call from the Lord. I mean, he had the risen Christ called him to this. And I think he had a very clear sense of that. And at times when he was backed into a corner, he would kind of play the apostle card, but not because he wanted to, he felt like he had to, he felt like people weren't even willing to listen to him anymore. Yeah. But even when he did that, even when he needed to defend his own apostleship, there was still no sense of arrogance or of of lording himself over others. No, it was, it was very much spoken of as a responsibility, not a privilege, you know, like that's, I think that's the difference. And yeah, he viewed himself as a coworker. I think there's a lot of handing off of the baton in Paul's ministry that is implicit in the New Testament that you have to look for. I mean, think of all the churches he planted. Every single time he started a congregation and then hit the road, that is a baton being handed to somebody. Yep. And so he he would still stay engaged and you know, I'll see you in a couple of years or you know, I'll send you a letter in 6 months, but he was constantly just geographically look at a map of where Paul, yeah. you know, yeah. ministered oh, yeah. and, and do the, num- do the numbers on how long it takes to get from one place to the other on foot or by yep. boat. And just geographically, you have to understand he was constantly sharing leadership. He was constantly passing off the baton. He could not have gone out about a ministry like that and retain a sense of these places live and die, rise and fall based on me. He couldn't do that. And of course, then we see the the more explicit examples of that, like in Acts, when he's talking to the Ephesian elders and he's saying, I'm not going to see you again. You know, that's, he's trusting in them. Second Timothy, Titus, you know, he's passing the baton to, to these leaders for a huge amount of responsibility. And so that should be a, a guide for us that, wow, if Paul was always looking for how he can hand responsibility to somebody else. We should be willing to do that. That's a real key that you're laying out there, I think, for a lot of us in handing the baton. Often we see it as a one-time act at the end of our ministry, either right. at the end of our, of our ministry at a particular church or at the end right. of our time of ministry as we go into retirement. Yeah. But if you haven't been a baton hander all along, mm-hmm. you're not going to do it well. It's going to be really hard to do it just that That's one true. time. But right. if you've been constantly doing that all along, it's in your in the way you do things. It's going to be much mm-hmm. easier to do it when you got to do it in a big way at the end of mm-hmm. a particular season of ministry. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And there's different grades of baton, I guess, like the more ordinary ones, which are, you know, within people in your in your ministry where you're delegating, like right. you're just you're not going about your leadership thinking that everything has to run through you. You, you really are trusting other people. So that can, that's sort of an ongoing kind of like local passing of the baton. But some people are called to minister in one congregation for their whole career. And that's great if God calls you to do that. Some people, they, you know, their career takes them lots of different places, different roles, different churches. 
And that can be really great too. I, I think though the litmus test, and I think I say something to this effect in the book, if you're unwilling to even imagine your church or whatever entity you're leading, if you're unwilling to even imagine that place without you, that's a problem. You know, it doesn't mean you're supposed to necessarily pass the baton and leave, but like, if you're unwilling to yeah. even entertain that, uh, you, you're probably gripping too tightly onto yeah. control. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. All right, let's. There's so much more we could do, uh, but let, we got a lightning round that we're going to have to subject you to. First of all, okay, let's do it. All right, here we go. Four lightning round questions. Question number one: What are the biggest changes you've seen in your field of ministry in the last few years, and how have you adapted to it? Biggest changes in the last few years: How have we adapted to it? The obvious one that everyone faced had to do with COVID, which accelerated a lot of trends that were already happening in terms of people, you know, engaging remotely and all that. And so um, that's an answer. It's kind of an easy answer, but it is a legitimate one and a big one. Oh yeah. Our church though, just to pair it with that, we also, during that time, we were moving from a portable church. We were building our first permanent little campus here during COVID. So, so we had the, we had the, yeah. We, I don't recommend it. Um, <laughs> I'm very <laughs> thankful for it all, but wow, that was a lot. So yeah. we had the dual transition of kind of like, okay, now we have this online presence and we're dealing with changing trends and attendance and all those kinds of things. And we're going from portable to permanent. And so it was uh, interesting to kind of grapple with both of those at the same time, but God, God led us through and and uh, we can, we're just continuing on and we're still the same church. So, you know, uh, he helped us walk through it. Thankful for that. Oh, terrific. Number two, what free resource like an app or a website has helped you lately that you would recommend for small church ministry? This just comes to mind just in terms of Bible study, the net Bible, uh, which NET new English translation, I feel like it should have had more fanfare when it came, actually came out when I was in seminary. So I sort of been back. 2006, 2007 in that era, but the new English translation, which is, it's a phenomenal translation. They have it online for free. And it is, this is the part that's the free, great resource. Not only is it a great translation, it is heavily footnoted. There might be three footnotes or four footnotes in a verse and you click on them and then it opens up a a window and it's commentary on the original languages, it's maps, it's and I believe you can locate hard copies of it, but I would recommend looking that up, the New English Translation. So NET, okay. Net Bible, it doesn't stand for net like the internet. Right, it's right. New English Translation, but there's a great online version that has incredibly robust running commentary. And so if you're looking oh, for just great. resources to do research for your messages, yeah. can't recommend that more highly. We'll put uh, notes for that in the in the show notes. We'll put a link there. That's great. Uh, question number three, what's the best piece of ministry advice you've ever received? Or if you've mm-hmm. got a top two or three, we'll take that as well. I'll give you one that somebody said to me, and then I'll give you one that I read. So I, I won't go into the details of it, but I had a, there was a difficult time in ministry for me a number of years ago when I felt that I was coming out of a church context that had become pretty unhealthy and, and there's just hurt feelings and it was just hard. And that was a prelude to actually when we planted our church, you know, many months later, so I was sort of grappling. I was in this moment where it was like, okay, we're starting a church and I want to be healthy and lead this thing. On the other hand, I've got this hurt and confusion and things that I'm trying to deal with. How do I handle this in a healthy way? And a friend of mine, Eric Willis, who was a pastor at the time, uh, now leads a great organization called Reclaim Leadership for Pastors. Eric said to me, you know, the Spirit's going to use 
the things that happened to you that were wrong to make you vigilant about those things not expressing themselves in the life of this new church. And, and you'll find over time that you're thankful in a way for the things that happened to you because those things might not have dawned on you for many, many years as things you'll want to avoid. Now you know to avoid them right off the bat and mm-hmm. you and your church are really going to be better for it. So th- that was just very comforting and I've found it to be true. God gave me a real sensitivity to some things that I'm so thankful for, uh, even though that came out of hardship. So Thankful for Eric on that. And then uh, I, I often go back to Tim Keller again his, in his, the first couple pages of Center Church, uh, where he talks about how you know if you're doing a good job in ministry. He makes that contrast between the successful model, which you're not really going for, and the merely faithful model, which isn't necessarily going to drive you forward. But he's advocating for this middle ground, which is a fruitful ministry where you you work hard and you strategize, but at the end of the day, you trust that whatever grows up out of the ground is beyond your control. That has been a great lens for me to come back to in evaluating. Am I doing a good job? Is our church doing a good job? I'm not going for just pure number success. I'm going for fruitful. And sometimes the yield is more than the work I put in. Sometimes I exhaust myself with very little yield and that's normal and that's good. And so that has been a calming and uh, life-giving reminder. So I, I come back to that a lot, that fruitfulness concept. I love it. Yeah, those are two great pieces. And the last one, we'll go from the serious to the slightly less serious with this one. Okay. What's the funniest or weirdest thing you've ever seen in church? <laughs> the funniest or weirdest thing? Oh my gosh. How do, I don't know how to choose. There was the chihuahua that kept coming into the <laughs> church when during construction and we couldn't get it to go away. And then there was the roving pack of small dogs after we opened opened our church that would just run around and, and sort of were like our church mascot for a little while. So those those are funny. One time I coughed in the middle of a message and I was kind of struggling to get my voice back and and someone in our church kind of like tripped over themselves to try to run and give me a bottle of water. It was very nice, but it was not executed well. That was kind of funny. Um, so uh, <laughs> I want to hear about the Chihuahua. What the, the, oh, yeah. so something about a Chihuahua just attracts my attention. So I know. Give us more on that one. <laughs> it's just well, there are just certain animals I feel are proof of God's sense of humor. A Chihuahua has got to be on the list. Yeah. You know, the, the platypus, the chameleon, the, you know, you just, right. <laughs> and uh, yeah, there was this really funny, I, I feel like even compared to other chihuahuas, this chihuahua <laughs> looked really funny. It just kept coming around. I, I kind of have a feeling maybe it hung around like the open land before we started putting up a building. And so it was just kind of like always around. And then we got our security cameras installed when we were in the finishing stages of putting up our building. And I would just get constant motion alerts on my phone of this chihuahua just doing laps around our building and just, I mean, it really, it was great. So I haven't seen it lately. I think someone like adopted it, but yeah, that was pretty funny. So it was that, that, it was nice to have a little chihuahua based levity in a stress, otherwise (laughs) stressful season ministry. So every once in a while, you just need a chihuahua for comic relief, I guess. Right. There you go. Your book again, to remind our listeners, Paul and his team, what the early church can teach us about leadership and influence. Uh, highly recommend it. It is much shorter than it sounds like it ought to be. Uh, <laughs> so if anybody's thinking, I can't take on a, a tome that's three inches thick, it's not. It's a, a short book. There's a lot in it, as you can tell, just from the bits and pieces that we picked at in this interview. Um, but how can people find you online if they'd like to follow up with you on anything? You can, um, I mean, if you want to contact me directly, you can just 
look up our church, Real Hope Community Church. And uh, I mean, my email address is on our staff page. I'm not really hard to find. I'm not right. really active on social media these days. So uh, if you reach out to me there and I don't get back to you, uh, don't take it personally. <laughs> okay. um, but I'm available on, on email. And um, I, I think that's probably the best way, actually. Yeah. All right, terrific. Thanks so much for your time and for this great book. I encourage our, our listeners to get it. It'll give you a lot of help about how to lead well in your congregation. Uh, it's amazing how the 21st century stuff is just a recycling of the first century issues with different names attached. So what Paul did with his team can really be a lesson for us today. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Well, as Ryan mentioned, or I guess as I mentioned to Ryan, there's so many books about the Apostle Paul out there, and so many of them are mighty tomes as Paul deserves. But in this really short and simple and easy to read book, I think Ryan does approach something about the Apostle Paul that isn't given enough credit, and that is that he really integrated his teaching with his relationships, and he made sure that his teaching served to bring people to Christ and into closer relationship with each other and not the other way around. So from this conversation, I have four quick takeaways. First of all, Paul built bridges, not walls. As the example of the uh, Areopagus, or what we call Mars Hill in Athens showed, he always held his, his own on the truth of the gospel, but he did so while showing those that he disagreed with that he respected where they were coming from, but that it had a deficiency that only the gospel could fulfill. This is so helpful for us, I think, in a conflict-ridden world in which so many people spend their time in. Second takeaway for me was that every relationship in our lives has to be seen through our identity as followers of Jesus first. Even in their first century world, this complex relationship of master to slave who were now both serving Christ, that Paul lays out that our servanthood to Christ has to supersede every other relationship and every other way our, our culture tries to force us into relating to other people. Third takeaway for me was this, that our teaching and our relationships have to be an integrated whole. We can't act one way with certain people and then teach one way with another group of people. If we're going to have fruitful, effective ministry, there has to be integrity between what we say and what we do, how we act and how we behave, no matter where we are and no matter who we're around. And then my fourth takeaway is this, handing the baton cannot be a one-time occurrence. If we hang on with a tight grip to ministry only until we're forced to let it go or until the time when it's time to leave a church or to leave ministry entirely, and then we try to do it then for the first time, we will not do it well. And no matter, no, no, no wonder we're seeing so many bad handoffs of ministry all over the place. For Paul, it was a constant, regular aspect of discipleship, and it has to be for us as well. This episode was produced by Veronica Beaver. It was edited by Phil Vaders. Original theme music was written and performed by Jack Wilkins of jackwilkinsmusic.com. The graphic design is by Solomon Joy. And me, I'm Carl Vaders, and I hope to talk with you again in the church lobby.
This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.